I was raised in a cult. Of course, if you'd have asked me all those years ago or anyone else in our small fundamentalist church if we were a cult, we'd have indignantly replied, absolutely not. Other groups like the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, they're cults, but we're not a cult. Everything became normalized, though, but it wasn't until decades later, after I deconstructed my entire belief system and walked away from the Christian faith entirely, that I began to see just how cultish the whole thing actually was. But before all of that, for over 20 years, I'd served both as a pastor and a Bible college teacher, so I had a hand in it, furthering the toxicity also. So in the process of rebuilding my life and discovering my authentic identity, I've got lots to work through, things like religious trauma syndrome, rapture anxiety, and just so much more. Join me, Dr. Clint Haycock, on the MindShift podcast as we take a look at such topics as cult tactics and psychology, religious trauma syndrome and religious addiction, taking your life back after leaving a cult or high-control group, and finally, dominion theology and the dangers posed by the Christian right, not just in America, but indeed the world. You can find my show on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Who knows, it might just be time for a mind shift. Sliders, and welcome to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I'm Troy. Sitting next to me in the virtual space is my co-host and dear friend, Brian McDowell. How are you, Brian? I'm great. I'm, I'm very good. It's a lovely Saturday morning and the birds are chirping, so my heart could not be happier. Today is another day that we are going to do something really, really cool. Do you remember our was Keith Green a cult leader episode? I, I do remember that well. It was a great chat with Tracy Phelan. Yep, and that was one of our most popular episodes to date. I think that really grabbed people because a lot of people found Keith Green to be an amazing influence on their lives, as he was for you and I. As you know, you said, you read his biography 10 to 15 times. I certainly read and listened to it at least that Keith Green was a massive influence on us. And do you remember, Brian, that when we were interviewing Tracy, she was telling us a lot about her friend and we've got her friend on today. So why don't I hand over to you to introduce Tracy's dear friend? It's like bring a friend to the pod day and it's and it's great. And what a great friend to bring. So today we've got Sharon Madere. Sharon was also in Last Days Ministries but also has a great story to tell. She connected with Keith very young as a teenager. Welcome, Sharon. It's awesome to have you here. Well, thank you both so much. Now, Sharon, today we, we are going to talk about, it is very much a part two to the conversation we have with Tracy, and we're, we're going to pick up that and where you connect into it. But your history with Last Days Ministries is a different history. So we're really interested to, to hear a lot more. But firstly, were you a teenage fundamentalist? Amen, brother, I was. <laughs> so tell us, take us back to 
when you when you met the Lord, when did you become a Christian and how? How did it all happen? And also, when, just to be clear, when we say when you met the Lord, we're not talking about Keith Green. Well, you know, it is. it does go hand in hand. <laughs> What do they, they used to say, but I, I went to a concert and gave my life to Keith Green. So that used to be something. I have to go back just a little bit in the childhood, not like totally, totally everything. But my family, I was raised Catholic and we were not great Catholics, but, you know, went to parochial school and had the first confession and, you know, first communion and all that kind of stuff. Unfortunately, also in my family, my my mother had a pretty severe drinking problem, really bad alcoholic family. So a whole lot of fear and insecurity and all that kind of stuff that goes along with a family like that. And I remember I remember being scared of God when I was when you go to first confession, I don't know what it's like if you guys have ever, well, I'm sure you've talked to other Catholics, but so, you know, you're going to be shoved in this little dark box and you need to tell God what you did wrong. And I remember being terrified, like you're like five or six years old and I couldn't think of anything. So I lied, I made up something. And at least that gave me something to tell at the next confession, but it was just, it was scary. It was awful. And we moved then to Arizona when I was about in third grade we weren't good Catholics anymore. We really didn't go to mass except on uh, holidays like Easter, Christmas, that kind of thing. And I remember thinking that, okay, there is a God, but that's just for old, you know, that's just for old people like my grandmother. I found solace in animals, dogs and horse. I'm just like totally into animals and I didn't have many friends. And so that was kind of like a connection. And that comes in later because that became an idol I had to give up. And that must have been really hard, by the way, living on a ranch in Waco. I just want to point that out. No, that was a different cult. That was a different one. Anyway, but I have this background. I believe that Jesus is real. I've heard that whole story. Uh, It just doesn't seem relevant to me. Then in August of 1973, the movie Jesus Christ Superstar was released. And I was 12 years old at the time. My dad took us to go see it. And I remember being in that theater And when the scene comes where Jesus is being whipped, I remember just weeping. I cried and I cried. And what kept going through my head was, that should be me. That should be me. I'm the one who deserves that. And of course, I look at a retrospect and I'm like, what the fuck? I mean, what is, can you imagine like a 12-year-old thinking that? I mean, there's something really screwed up there. But I was sensitized, highly sensitized to it. Over the course of the next couple of years, my mom's drinking continues and uh, yeah, and it's not good. In the summer of 1974, uh, we were in Tucson, Arizona, and there was an organization there called Up With People that had uh, their summer training campus there. And there was a guy who came and stayed with us. His name was Ray Ware. He stayed in our guest house. Where that comes in is the following summer, the summer of 1975. Now, back up, according to, if you read the book, No Compromise by Melody Green, Keith and Melody kind of got saved around May of 1975. So now we're going to fast forward to the summer, fast forward a whole like three months, four months at the most. And Ray Ware had been best friends with a Christian artist called Randy Stonehill. Ray was, I believe, the best man and Randy at Randy's wedding. And of course, Randy and Keith were friends, sort of, sort of uh, controversial, well, not controversial. They had 
conflict, but friendship. And so Keith went to Randy's wedding. And while Keith was there, Keith believed that God told him to give Ray a ride back to Tucson, Arizona, instead of Ray having to take the bus. Keith had another friend, Jerry Hauser, who was an actor at the time in movies anyway. So Keith and Jerry tell Ray they're going to bring him back to Tucson. So they hop in the car and they drive from Southern Cal to, to our city and they come and they stay at our house. The three of them are bunking in the guest house, but we have a piano in our main like living room. So Keith comes bopping into the house and, you know, he looks the part. He looks like Jesus, right? The long curly hair and the, the beard and the jeans and the sandals and the whole thing. He's pounding on our piano and singing songs and he's talking to my mom. And he's talking to my dad. And then, you know, as the evening wears on, he actually is really confronting my mom because she's kind of getting schnockered. He's confronting my mom about her drinking. And I was... I was in the background just watching all of this and taking it in. I think what, what really happened was the story he told about Jesus and God and sin and what God wants in our lives, it finally made sense of all the pain that I was in, of, of the difficulty in my life, of the isolation, of the loneliness, of the fear just because of the really bad family situation. And here's a guy who's confronting my mom. You know, I mean, I had argued with her over and over about her drinking, trying to beg her to stop. And he's telling her, God has the power to do this. And you need to repent and you need to follow Jesus and Jesus will make a difference. And I'm just soaking it up, just standing in the background, just soaking it up. And I don't remember if he stayed one or two days with us or three days. I can't remember for sure, but I remember that night, I remember going to bed, sitting on my bed in the dark and thinking, wow, maybe that is the real Jesus. What this guy has, that might be the real Jesus. And I remember thinking, okay, whatever that is, God, if you're real, whatever that is, I want that. I need that. The next day, Keith had planned to, now he's going to talk to all the kids. And there's four of us. I'm the oldest. I was, I had just turned 14. So he's going to talk with all of us at some point. And I don't, I think I was just sitting in the living room, just sitting there thinking of something, whatever. And he comes bopping up out of the guest house, bopping into the living room. And he, he looks at me and he goes, Hey, Hey, you got zapped. And that's what he called it back then. They, they, I don't, I can't believe I didn't make it in the book. Like that's what everybody said. It's like, God zapped you. You got zapped. And I'm just looking going, I, I, I don't know yet. He's like, yeah, you want to follow Jesus? And I don't remember all of what happened at that point, but it was like this connection of yes, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to be, this is, this is totally different. This is life-changing. This is, this is it. This is the truth. I can't think of, I don't think Ray was with us at that point. I think he had to go do whatever he was doing with the organization, but definitely Keith and Jerry and I, we got in the car, we went down to the University of Arizona bookstore to go find a Bible. He's like, okay, I got to buy you a Bible. And we're all, we're barefoot. I mean, which is crazy because it's Tucson, Arizona. It's like the, the concrete is burning hot, but we're barefoot and we're, we're, jumping out of the car and we're running into the store and he buys me a green leather bound living Bible. And we come out and we're waiting to cross the street and it's so hot. Our feet are burning. So he's like, 
put it down, put it down. So we, we put the Bible down and we take turns standing on it to get our feet, hot feet off the, the, I mean, our feet off the hot pavement. Then he sits down, we get back to the house and he sits down and I wish I could find the notes. He made me take all these notes about this is how you're going to follow Jesus. And it was like a page or two. Yeah. So that's how I got saved. See the charisma even oh, totally. in that story there. I'm sitting here listening to that going, I want to give my heart to Jesus and stand <laughs> on a Bible with Keith Green. That's just amazing. Yeah. I know Tracy told you that she found uh, that I found the the inscription. And do you, you guys, I think uh, Troy said you wanted me to read what he wrote in my Bible. Yeah, we'd love to hear it. We need to, we need to hear that. So he's bought you the Bible that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Has he then done this inscription in your Bible? Yeah. Oh yeah. He wrote the Bible. He wrote, he wrote in it right there. We just had Bart Ehrman on our podcast a little while ago, and he's like discovering ancient papyri of, you know, the gospel of Mark. This is what this feels like. We're getting this ancient <laughs> writings of Keith Green. So this is August 5th, 1975. My beloved sister, Sharon, I see in you the heart of a saint. Let God have his perfect will in you by letting him train you for holy service. Read this book and study it to the core, for it is your survival manual. Daily pray for the Holy Spirit and give thanks to God for Jesus and the saving of your soul. Seek fellowship and rest in Jesus. Your faith will thrive. Always remember that I love you and will always pray for you. Don't ever think you can be taken from Jesus. Your salvation is sealed. Forsake evil, purify your speech, thought, and deeds, but never forget you can't do it but with God's help through Jesus, your brother in Christ, Keith. And then I have his phone number and his address. Where do I sign up? <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, let's, let's publish the phone number. <laughs> 555-2972. Call Keith now. Right. And he did. He said to me, he said, call me, call me, collect anytime. And we wrote letters back and forth and I called him a lot. And I think he, you know, he's like, okay, you know, you're going to be persecuted for your faith, you know, because, because that my mom did not get saved. My mom and dad know they thought this was crazy, but I think he, he said, look, you know, if, if they throw you out of the house for Jesus, because Jesus said that stuff would happen. He said, no, you're going to come and live with me, you know? And he said, I'm going to, I'm going to send you a, a plane ticket or a bus ticket. In fact, like a, a I can't remember a few months later, we were talking on the phone and he's like, okay, you got to get baptized and I'll, I'll, you know, come on out. We're going to baptize you in the Pacific ocean. But my parents wouldn't give me permission. And I mean, I was only 14. So yeah. And he was, he was 21 at that time. You guys are just standing there. I'm seeing your faces and you're just like. <laughs> we were Keith groupies. I mean, Keith, we, we said this to, to, um, to Tracy and I think you may have listened to that episode. Like Keith meant a lot to us. In oh, yeah. when we were Christians, I mean, totally. he was very much that roadmap of how you actually live for Jesus, yeah. like how you actually do something radical, how you are completely sold out. Again, you know, it's that no compromise stuff, right? And that, right. That's exactly what it sounds like. I mean, you're giving a first-hand account of Keith staying at your house in your living room, essentially doing a little mini concert, yeah, and then you're going, I've got to have a part of this. So mm. what happened? You're you're at home. You haven't got parents who are into this. No, no. You're 14 years old. I mean, you've got this connection with Keith. Where, where do you go with it? How do you actually keep it going? 
Yeah, so he comes back to Tucson. He made another trip. I don't remember the exact date, but I think it was pretty pretty soon after, like two months or so. Like he's like, no, I'm coming back to see you. I'm going to come back and we're going to help you find a, a church to go to. So anyway, so he comes back into town. The church he found that he wanted me to, <laughs> we went to together was called the Jewish Gentile Bible Fellowship. It was this really old couple <laughs> meeting in a house. And there were like maybe three or four other people, like all old. And uh, it's like, I certainly didn't fit in and he didn't quite fit. But he's like, okay, we're going to start with that. Yeah, so he li- links me up and we go there. And I remember, I think we went out to pizza the, that night or something. But anyway, we went into some restaurant. And I think that was the first time I got a glimpse of something because he was, he was really rude to the wait staff. He was really rude. I was sensitized to that a bit because my mother acted that way with, in, at restaurants. Like we always dreaded going somewhere because like, oh my God, is she going to embarrass us? Yeah, he was there, but, but he's doing it with bebop and, you know, just, just, and he could never sit still. Keith was always like bouncing. Like he was just bouncing. He never sat still. His leg would bounce. He was just, yeah, he was just like energy, just incredible energy. Anyway, then after that, the folks, that older couple, they called another church, another youth pastor. It was the first evangelical free church. And there was a youth pastor there named John Miller. He and his wife, they were very, they were just very generous and sweet. And they would come and pick me up from my house because my parents wouldn't support it, wouldn't wouldn't take me to church. And so I started, I started going there. Shortly thereafter in the fall, I started high school, became friends with a gal who was a senior, and she went to a different church. She went to Grace Chapel, which was a non-denominational. We can joke about that because that is a dumb denomination, isn't it? Of course, this was in the 70s. So maybe at that time, it was a real thing. But it was a charismatic church, you know, with the raising of hands and prophecy and speaking in tongues and all of that. That got me intrigued. And I'm talking to my youth pastor and the folks at First E Free. And no, those things are not. That's not of God. You know, that's that was that was a different dispensation. That was back then. This is not God. This is, you know, so I'm like, what is it? Is it what is it? So anyway, I, I visited that church once with with Jane and and I just felt like drawn to it. You know, the worship was much more like it wasn't it wasn't quite it wasn't Keith-esque, but it was, you know, sort of Calvary Chapel, what was going on at that time. And I just felt really drawn to it because it had an emotional tug, right? I think that's what really hooked all of us. It's like there is this sense of emotion and connection and this idea of something greater and bigger than ourselves that we can be a part of. And and that's very dynamic. That's very magnetic. But I wasn't sure. So I called Keith. And I'm like, you know, again, because we did talk a good bit. I'm like, Keith, what is this? You know, I don't know what to do. And I don't remember exactly when this was. I think it was probably late in 75. I tried reading the book to get where he where a date of his journal entry about being baptized in the Holy Spirit, but the book doesn't have a date on that. That would help me because this would have been after. And he's like, he's like, oh my God, oh my God. I, I, I Well, he probably didn't say, oh my God, but he said, he said, oh, I, I didn't realize like, oh, I didn't pray with you to get baptized in the Holy Spirit. Oh yeah, yeah. We're going to do it right now. So I'm sitting on the floor in my bedroom. I got the phone and Keith's like on the other line. He's like, okay, now, you're just going to close your eyes and you're going to raise your hands and I'm just going to talk you through this. So we 
talk and he's like, okay, now just let it flow, you know, just let it flow. And sure enough, there I am speaking in tongues on my bedroom floor as Keith Green is helping me get baptized in the Holy Spirit over the phone. So yeah, so there was that. I mean, that that's amazing, really, that, <laughs> you know, not only did Keith Green lead you to the Lord, but he coached you to speak in tongues over the phone. Yeah. <laughs> You've got an amazing story so far. I mean, this is just brilliant. What method did he use? Because I've I got coached in the rubber gum boots, rubber gum boots, rubber gum boots. Did he did he use a, no, a, a, no. Hallelujah, no, hallelujah? No, 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 he didn't. It was just like and it and it was like a pretty quick thing. I think people that are I, I tend to be a pretty outgoing, out there, uninhibited person. And so I think that is part of what let it just flow. And I'd heard it. I'd heard the speaking in tongues in, you know, at the church at Grace Chapel. So I'd been exposed to it and I just believed that it would happen. And what is it really? Uh, you know, come on, stuff's coming out of your subconscious or con- whatever, you know, it's, it's kind of some crazy shit, but I'll tell you what, it's really funny. <laughs> a couple of years later, I'm I'm in a, a choir ensemble at like there's the specialized ensemble at, at the, in the high school choir and we're singing in a state competition and I had a solo and it was a uh, it was a song in German and it comes to my solo and I blank out on the words so I just start making up shit I just start singing in tongues and my choir director <laughs> looks at me with this like what is that? And I'm just going with it. And so, yeah, it kind of saved my solo in high school. <laughs> you guys are just like, I see your faces and you're like not reacting at all. You're just like stone, like, ah, or something. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. We, we, we are here. We are totally with you. We're just blown away that you're at your school concert and you just go into a solo in tongues. That's yes. so good. And then you say, it saved my soul. Low. I thought that was a great yes. time. By the way. Yeah, it, it, it great. was great. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Yeah. So then Keith, you know, he actually, he mailed me a copy. Uh, it was, I guess, in 77. So the first album for him who has ears to hear comes out. So he mailed, you know, he immediately mailed me a copy of that. So he had a tour. He had one concert tour that was pre-album and one that was post-album. And I'm pretty sure that he scheduled concerts in Tucson on bo- with both of those. Um, so we could spend some time together. I, I'm sure it wasn't just so we could spend time together, but I, it probably played in choosing Phoenix. I'm sorry, choosing Tucson rather than Phoenix. Let's see. So ninth and 10th grade, I'm crazy for Jesus. Everybody in my school knows that I'm crazy for Jesus. 11th grade, I decided to graduate early because I'd spent summer summers. I, I went to summer school because I'd did everything I could to not be at home because home was not a good place to be. I remember in, in 11th grade. So normally I don't know what your high school years are in, in Australia, but 11th grade is junior 12th grade is senior. So I decided I had enough credits that if I took one other class, I could actually graduate in my 11th year of school. So I was um, 16 when I graduated and I had a college scholarship. And though that last half of that year, I started just wanting to be more with just my peers. You know, we would travel with the choir group and everything. And, and then I started just kind of wishing I had a boyfriend. Now I was quite 
like naive, like my wishing to have a boyfriend didn't have really a sexual motivation. I was, that just wasn't it. It's like, I would be, I would, I would go all over the, you know, the guy with the cute face and like Donny Osmond type, you know, I was just, it was a very immature, young teenager kind of thing. But it's like, I think I really, that's what I want. And so gradually I'm spending less and less time with my Christian friends and more time with the choir. I got a part at the university during the summer. I got a part in one of their major play productions. And so I'm now I'm hanging out with the drama crowd at the university and I'm just gradually, I would be gradually backsliding, not going to church anymore, kind of ignoring my Bible and not praying. And of course, feeling guilty, definitely feeling guilty. Christmas of 1978, my friends who had been Christians, who'd gone off to college out of state and they're coming back, we have like a little gathering or party. I go to it and somewhere in the midst of that party, I look over and someone has, they've up on the, on this stereo cabinet or whatever, sitting on top is an album and the cover has this illustration of a king on a horse looking angry and all these people bowing down and one person standing up and not bowing down. And the top of the album says no compromise. I didn't know who it was because it didn't say the artist on front, but I remember seeing that and feeling just this stab in my heart of, Oh my goodness, that, ah, that's, I, that's who I should be, but I'm not. And just this really pang of guilt. So that, that was Christmas of 78. Little side note, will come in later. My to-be husband was actually the model standing in the robe for the artist for that illustration. So, yeah. So for that period, though, I mean, you, you know, saying you're backslid, before that you're talking to Keith a lot and you're really connected with Keith. So had that dropped off as well? You weren't connecting? It did. From the summer of the summer of 78... Probably, probably late spring of 78 through Christmas of that year. I, yeah, I wasn't ca- calling him. I wasn't writing. I wasn't, no, I, I wasn't. And I don't, I don't remember if he wrote to me during that time or not. I'm thinking probably not, but I mean, he was busy. He had a baby and, or, or maybe Melody was pregnant. No, I think, I think maybe Josiah was already born. Yeah. You know, he's busy. He's got an album, he's touring and everything else. There were a couple other instances that were like, really convicting to me in December and January. And then on February 2nd, 1979, I wrote a long letter to Keith and I still have that letter just pouring my heart out saying I have fallen away and I want to get back with Jesus and all that kind of stuff. Oh, he would have, he would have loved that because that, that was him. Yeah. He read it out loud. He read it out loud to the whole ministry and then he immediately called me and he said, we're in the midst of a revival. And if you, if you read in the book that talking about this time where there was just this intense, intense, you know, we're going to call it revival of the Holy Spirit and people are being convicted of sin and recommitting their lives and just this real intense thing going on. It was then. And so he called me and he said, you got to come out. You got to come out. God's doing something big here. And so I don't remember if it was a plane ticket or a ticket or whatever. Anyway, he, he sent me, he sent me a ticket. And so I did, I told my mom and dad, I'm going to take some time off, you know, I'm just going to go, I'm just going to go visit for a week, but I never came back. I dropped out of college and never came back. And I was, uh, 
it was 79. I was 17 when I, when I went there. And so where was that at the time? Were they still in Southern California? Yeah. Yeah. That was Woodland Hills, um, Dolorosa street. And I think I was staying in the house next door that, that had recently, I can't remember if that was rented or purchased. So I get there and the ministry is in the midst of this, you know, what is referred to as the revival in LDM lore. And it was intense. And we're, you know, again, bunch of kids, bunch of babies. We're kind of all hippie-ish. We're in jeans. We're laying on the floor, our faces in the carpet, weeping and weeping. And one of the things, you know, I, I think Keith had read, it was, it was Charles Finney breaking up the fallow ground, this whole thing about really searching your heart, really finding anything, anything that you're holding above God. One of the intense things, we're, so we're praying. And I remember I remember the t- it was talking about idols. Do you have any idols before God? As I'm praying, all I can think of are my riding boots, horseback riding boots back home. I'll back up just a little bit. So for me, I, from the time I was a little tiny kid, I mean, I, my whole life, I remember just being horses were just, I was just a total horse crazy girl. Starting in sixth grade, when we had moved to a certain part of town, there was a stable close enough to my school that I could walk to it. And I didn't have a horse, but I, I was able to borrow and take riding lessons and other things. And, but I would go there every day that I could after school. I, that, that was a safe place for me. It was a safe place. The horses were non-judgmental, and you felt like you could connect. And, you know, girls have this emotional thing. But also it kept me out and away from a very chaotic home. That was my safe place. And I loved horses. And in fact... Right around the time before Keith said, okay, you need, you know, come on out. I'm going to bring you out. My riding coach, she had a connection with a member of the U.S. Olympic team. And I was a pretty talented equestrian. She had set up a working student position for me with the the U.S. equestrian team. And so that was waiting for me in for May of that year. And I was really looking at doing it, like getting out of school and going and doing that instead. So it's a big deal for me. And I'm there and I'm on my face, just weeping and crying. And all I can do is I can see my riding boots in my closet back home in Arizona. I can see my shelves with all these books about horses and the Black Stallion series and all these things. I can see the models, the briar models of my horses. And in my heart, it's just, these are idols. These are more important to you than God. So I go and I talk with Keith and I say, Keith, this is what I think I need to do. And I think I need, and he says, yes, yes, that's, that's right. So I get my mom to pack up all that shit, put it in a box, send it to me because I couldn't trust her to get rid of it. Send it to me there in Woodland Hills so that I can then give it away. And, and I do, and I get rid of all of it. And that's my purging of my idol of horses. And so Sharon, how do you see that now, looking back? Do you see that as giving up of the things that matter to you? It's crazy. Right. It's crazy. What it is, clearly, I'm no longer, I'm no longer Christian. I, I'm not. I think I have a, a, a spiritual sense of things, but I, I'm definitely not Christian. If I were to boil it down, this is, this is to me how fucked up it is. The essence of Christianity is this. On the one hand, God loves you so much. You are so valuable. You are so worthwhile. You are so, you are worth enough 
for his son. That's how much he loves you. And on the other hand, you are so horrible. Everything about you is so bad and so horrible that God cannot possibly even stand to be around you or have you near him unless he tortures and murders his son so that he can stand to be near you. You're so bad, God had to kill himself. That's how bad you are. So anything in you, anything in you that is something, you know, this idea of death to self, right? Pick up your cross, you know, follow Jesus, lay it all down at his feet. Anything in you that is important is probably of the flesh. And if in doubt, cast it out. <laughs> That's how I see it. Yeah, well, I think that was a, it's a very good, passionate, Sharon, and, and something that certainly we share as well. I'm interested to, to pick up, we read about this time in, in Keith's life where he was in, uh, still in California and buying up houses or renting houses and expanding LDM with bringing in people who were recovering drug addicts, people who were broken in many different ways. What did that community look like? And for a 17-year-old, was that something that was a little bit scary or did you just feel really embraced by it all? Was it Manson-esque? No, it actually felt great. It was like, it was exciting. It's like we're all here. And so that taking in of the drug addicts and the runaways and and folks with um, a whole lot of problems, that definitely had been going on. After I came, I don't remember anybody else coming. I think that the doors were full. I think, I, I'm not 100% sure, but I really don't remember any new people coming after that. I think it was also a transition. Like even though the, even though there's talk about yeah, the move to Texas was because we were bursting at the seams and wanted to minister to other people. I think it was really more a pivot to we got a business to run because things really pared down. Like I think at the, I think they had up to 80 people in the different houses, maybe even more. I think there were at least at least four houses when I was there. Oh, by the way, I do remember sitting on the floor next to Bob Dylan, you know, while he's leading worship and Bob Dylan had come to visit. That was kind of a trip. So it was it was a cool thing, though. You know, there were there were lots of people coming and going kind of from the Christian artist scene. There was this sense that this is something exciting and new and different and transformative and revolutionary. And we're radical because, you know what, we're not in this in this stuffy old church, we're like saying, how did Jesus live? And let's live this way. And the disciples had all things in common. So that's what we did. I mean, people sold stuff and gave the money to the ministry. And we're all, you know, we had, we ate dinner together. You know, you had a crew that were, were responsible for cooking and, and serving and a crew for cleaning. And then there were people doing office work and people doing, you know, keeping the cars running. So it was really a commune in a suburb, <laughs> but it was commune living. And there was something really exciting and passionate about it. You were talking that only a few short months before this, you had that yearning for a boyfriend or yearning. Mm -hmm. Had that, had that gone and had Jesus become your boyfriend? Yeah. Yeah. Went back to, it's all Jesus. It's all Jesus. Has this ever happened to you? I went to Sunday school every Sunday, and now I can't hear a loud horn without having an anxiety attack. Hi, I'm recently deceased but never forgotten Christian music sex symbol Carmen. 
I'm calling Collect from the Big House, meaning heaven, not jail, to tell you how to get answers for your religious traumas. I started the excommunication station, and now I realize my empathy felt weird when I was a kid, and how the Council for National Policy, a shadowy Christian organization, controls just about fucking everything in America. So if you've been looking for answers, or if you've ever been on the outside wondering, hey, what's really going on in the church? These gobble ghouls have the info you need. So look up the excommunication station wherever you get your podcasts and all the socials under XCOMPOD. Peace be with you. Hey Troy, I would like to give a huge shout out to our Patreon supporters. So you should, Brian, because we do love our Patreon subscribers. Our Patreon subscribers get a range of benefits, including free merch, access to our exclusive subscribers group, and a monthly live video call with us. All proceeds go towards the running and promotion cost of the podcast. Find out more at patreon.com forward slash IWATF or see our Linktree URL in the show notes. Hashtag fucking blessed. So what happens next? You're the last person to come into that community of, you know, several houses around that neighbourhood. How long was it before then there was the transition to Waco? (laughs) To Garden Valley, a.k.a. Lindale, Texas, East Texas. It was within, I believe, six months that the ministry moved and it really got pared down to kind of a select group. So there were maybe 25 people total. So maybe a dozen sisters that, that went, um, I made the cut. So I got to go. Let me just say a few things about Keith himself before, you know, in in that transition. So when I think of Keith, you know, people say, you know, no compromise. That's what sums up Keith to me. Keith was no volume control, no filters, no boundaries. That's, that's the essence of who Keith was. And I love Keith. And far away, you know, and in Christendom, you look and say, oh my God, this is the most amazing prophet of God, right? You guys did, I did. We all thought, oh my God, far away. You get a little closer and you see, this guy is a total jerk. He can be a really arrogant asshole when you got really close to him. You were saying before that, you know, he was rude to the waitress and stuff, but how did that play out? In Because people were obviously interpreting it as, you know, this guy is the cho- one of the chosen ones of God. He's, he's going to deliver God's message. Right. But was it his charisma or his arrogance or his certainty about himself and his position with God that, really manifest itself in in those ways that you're saying that he came across as rude. Yeah, he did. Well, that was kind of like the little closer. And I just say though, that went really close up, you know, he's, he's an imperfect human who's got some really, really great stuff and some really shitty stuff. He's got misguided behaviors, sometimes incredibly arrogant, sometimes incredibly humble, incredibly humble. He could be kind, he could be cruel, he could be generous, impulsive, he was really funny. But the way it would look like, like the asshole stuff was, yeah, like being really, really rude to the to waiters. I remember I remember one night, this is when we were in Texas. So he and Melody did not keep the same schedule and rules that were imposed on all of us. Like our rule, our rule that we had to be up at seven o'clock in the morning, you had breakfast. 
imposed quiet time from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. You could only pray and read the Bible. You couldn't read any other book. You couldn't you couldn't listen to music. And then we'd work and then we'd finally go to bed at, at 11. Well, Keith and Mel did not keep that same schedule. And the, okay, that's fine, but we're all living in the same house. And I remember once before there was like a, there was a concert or something. He was getting ready to go on tour again or maybe go do an album. And so he's playing piano at like two in the morning, banging piano. He didn't practice. He, he, he was so gifted. He did not need to practice. He absolutely did not. He was banging the piano to build up his calluses before he was going to go go out and, and again, either the, either a concert tour or an album. But it was the rest of us, we're now being woken up and it's not very considerate. And, and Martin, who I was not connected with at that time, but he was one of the, the, el- the quote elders, which is hysterical because we're all in our young, early 20s, right? So Martin went and confronted him and said, Keith, Keith, man, people got to sleep. And Keith said something like, you know, these hands, these hands are what has built this ministry. And it was like this really arrogant, horrible thing. I'm, I don't know what exactly Martin said to him at the time. It was probably the Christian equivalent of what the fuck? The next day, however, Keith, he confessed and repented to all of us. You know, he said, guys, I am so sorry, my pride. And so, you know, he could, he had that. He, he was on, he was extreme. No matter what he was doing, he was extreme. You know, Sharon, this isn't a word that we would have used even in the 90s when we were pseudo Keith devotees. But the term that comes to my mind when I hear these stories about Keith, and I even used to look at him and think, having read, you know, Melody's book numerous times and listened to it numerous times on tape, the term that comes to me is neurodivergent. Very possibly. Do you think there was, and we are not making any accusations against this guy here, but do you think that there might have been some sort of ADHD? I mean, he's always bopping, his feet are always moving, he's got this intensity, you know, he's impulsive and compulsive. This is sounding to me, as someone who used to be an educator and and work with kids and be looking for, for, for symptoms for some sort of diagnosis, this is possibly some sort of ADHD. This is possibly some sort of high functioning autism, this lack of empathy. Do you think there's at least a possibility that that's what was going on? Or do you think he was just hyped up on everything that he was hyped up on? You know, it's probably a combination of everything. I I think it's very possible. I don't know. I'm certainly not a professional or qualified to make a diagnosis like that, but I think it's certainly possible. And if you read between the line, well, between the lines of some of the things in the book too, I mean, to recognize that, well, his parents were Harvey and Shar, they were loud, <laughs> they were intense. You know, I met them and was around them and, and uh, both visiting, I think we went to visit their house once. I don't know why I did. Also, they came a couple times before we were leaving. And, you know, there was just this loud, incredible intensity going on. So there's, you know, how much of this is genetic nature, nurture that's going on with him, but also this idea of being in the spotlight, his mom had him in photo shoots for promo for something at age two and a half, and he's doing commercials at seven. Okay. That's not being driven from a child who says, I want to sign up for this. This is parents. This is showbiz parents with a bit of pushing going on. And that doesn't mean that Keith himself temperamentally wasn't wanting the limelight. 
clearly, clearly he did. And he, and he constantly was struggling with himself of like, how much is my pride and ego? And how much does I want to lay everything down for Jesus? So there was inner conflict going on with him for sure. One other thing has dawned on me is I think when he's talking as a teenager and saying things like he feels this intense calling on his life, what's more like he just, he wanted to be out there doing something important and he's searching for a cause. You know, I think that, I think his personality was such that it just was a matter of time until the right cause clicked with him that he could then be, this is my message to the masses. I, I think he was just driven that way. And and by the sound of it, I mean, it sounds like he could sell anything to anyone. Oh, yeah. I, I'm going to say, if you go back and read that book, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you go back and read the book and you underline how many times, wouldn't take no for an answer, talk to somebody for hours, finally they gave in. I mean, it's over and over and over and over. And honestly, poor Mel, I mean, Melody, if you, if you look at what that relationship, that dynamic was, that was not healthy. That was a whole lot of bullying and control and not allowing someone their own autonomy is when you really get down to it. And, and that, that played out at different points within the ministry itself. And but, you know, he, he had he had a passion, absolutely. And there was a genuine love for others. I mean, I know Keith genuinely loved me and cared about me. I have no doubt about that whatsoever. He just didn't have any respect for individual autonomy. And whatever Keith thought was good for Keith, he thought was good for everyone. So, you know, we'd go out to a restaurant, you know, we, we Keith and Mel and, and Martin and I, when, once we were married, we, we hung out a good bit together. We were at their house late at night on, on the weekends. We'd watch SCTV. We, you know, we'd watch funny movies together. We'd go to the movies. We'd go to dinner. We were close enough that he, you know, when he finally wanted a vacation, he came, he said, hey, Martin, Sharon, you guys got to come with me. It won't be any fun without you. Let's go. So we said, yeah, sure, we're in. And we were close enough that he asked us, okay, if Melody and I die, will you guys raise our children? So I was in the will to raise Keith's children if he and Melody died. So we did have a close relationship. We definitely did. So Sharon, let's take a step back from that then. And you tell us about your marriage, because before we hit record, you were calling this an arranged marriage. So who arranged this marriage and who, who did you marry? I wish no ill to anyone. My, my ex-husband, he came, as we all did, we came as broken people with a lot of baggage that we were desperately trying to figure out ourselves and follow Jesus and do the best we could. And we had some really crap ideas and some really crap counsel and made some really crap decisions. So I, I, I don't wish anyone any ill whatsoever. According to Martin, uh, Martin Bennett, he was, he and Wayne Dillard and Keith were the leaders, elders of last days. Again, we're all in their twenties. So it's kind of funny to call them elders. I saw something that he told someone once that he felt attracted to me from the moment Keith read that letter that I wrote when I was 17, that I wrote, and then Keith flew me out there. I think we all thought that Martin was kind of the next in line as far as that same intensity of spirit and that same 
drive for holiness and intolerance of sin as Keith. Um, there were very much, there was a lot of that cut from the same cloth. Martin was a really excellent teacher. In fact, he was a better teacher than Keith because he could follow a, he could, you know, Keith would bop all over the place, but, but Martin could be very systematic. So we all had a tremendous respect for him. There were times he would teach and he'd, he'd actually kind of just break down weeping at the heart of God and how sin hurts God. So, you know, it's a very awesome thing. And here I am, you know, I mean, he's in his, he's in his twenties and I'm 17 and I'm like, you know, wow, that's, that's, that dude's, you know, that dude's spiritual for sure. Within the ministry, there were a lot of rules, right? Cause you got a lot, you've got single men and women living under the same roof. So you were not, there's not a lot of mixing going on at all. It was very, very tight. And I think there was this thing called, I was trying to figure out what we call it. Was it like a special relationship? And there was one homegrown couple. So Wayne Dillard and Kathleen, and I cannot remember her maiden name right now. They were engaged. I believe they were engaged when we left California and they were, they got married in 1980 in, uh, in Texas, once we were in Texas. So they were the first like match made in at last days. Martin was the other guy on leadership and he was still single. So this is maybe this is in, in the beginning of 1980, maybe it's nine months or so after we moved to, to Texas. I had never had a boyfriend. So, you know, I'm again, I'm pretty, pretty naive. And one day Mel comes to me and says, you know, Sharon, I need to talk to you. And so you know, you always, you got worried whenever someone said, hey, I need to talk to you. That was not, usually not a good thing. So she's like, oh, I just want to know, like, do you feel attracted to anyone? So I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm 18 years old. And this was kind of like, uh, I felt awkward and I didn't have like a burning thing, but I sort of had a little crush on one of the guys that was one of the twins in the, uh, in our art room. Yeah, he was a year older than me. He was really funny. He was really fun. He was really gentle. He was just, just, just a fun guy. So I said, yeah, I, well, okay. Yeah. I kind of feel attracted to so-and-so. And I can't remember exactly what she said, but a few minutes later she said, well, have you ever considered Martin? And I was just kind of like a little bit frozen of, well, Mitch, sure right? What am I going to say? This was like really, really odd, really weird. And it wouldn't be the first time in an evangelical church that the pastor's wife isn't trying to set you up with the pastor's best friend. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) A few days later, or maybe a week later or something like that. So we're working at night and we, our work schedule was we worked until 10 o'clock every night and then went to bed at 11. And sorry, Sharon, let's not gloss over that up at whatever time and working till 11. Working till 10. We got off at 10. We got okay, to go sorry. to bed at 11. Sorry, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's better. Yeah, let's let's not gloss over that. No, we're not. You know, this the whole, it is beautiful that we never solicited for donations and concerts were just offering based and albums were available for whatever you could afford. And we were all 100% for that. And none of us felt used. None of us felt abused in the workload. At least, well, I shouldn't say none of us. I didn't. And at the same time, there is no way all of that shit couldn't have been done the way it was done and be for whatever you can afford without, in essence, free labor. It was free labor. 
if the ministry had paid minimum wage, you know, like all the controversy where Keith is challenging, you know, Buck and Annie, who were neighbors of ours. Anyway, Keith's challenging Buck and Annie to, uh, you know, you guys should not be charging for concerts and you should be doing the albums and stuff. Yeah, well, you know what? They didn't have an army of slaves to, you know, to work for free. Anyway, that's probably overstating it. I shouldn't state it quite that strongly, but it's the truth. If you run the economics, if you crunch the numbers, it wouldn't have happened that way without the setup that was was in place. I think it's an accurate reflection, and and it's something I think that is is drawn out in this conversation, but also our conversation with Tracy. You're right. You you can't have that system in place where you're pay what you want if you want if you haven't got 50 or 100 or 150 people behind you working for free yeah well we did at one point we did start getting a bit of an allowance you know some people would get like 50 bucks a month or other things anyway but and and then and got more the longer you were on staff so i don't want to belabor that part too much so it's probably nine o'clock at night or whatever and i'm working on the computer doing some data entry or doing something and so there's this big giant living room and off that living room is a hallway and there's Keith and Mel's bedroom and down further is the sister's dorm. And off to the other side of the house is the kitchen and then through to the garage and the garage is the print shop. So I'm working in the office and um, some of the guys are running the printing press or, you know, working in there doing something. So Keith comes, Keith comes bopping out and he goes, Sharon, Sharon, come here, come here. I got to talk to you. So again, you kind of go, okay, is there something going on? So he takes me into, so go into their bedroom. Melody's sitting on the bed. Keith sits down on the bed. I don't know. I'm either still standing or I sit on the floor. And he says, so Melody tells me that uh, you kind of like Martin. And I'm kind of standing there again, a little bit frozen, a little bit deer in the headlights. I certainly didn't go to tell anybody, hey, I like Martin. I want to have a, a relationship. Or I didn't even go say, hey, I like this other guy and I want this. I'm just like... Yeah. He says, okay, well, like, you know, Martin's, Martin's been praying and he's come to leadership and he submitted this and we've been praying about it. And we think that, uh, we think this really could be God. And, and so like, what do you think you want to, you know, kind of start a special relationship or whatever it is that was called. And I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah, I guess I do. Yeah. It's just, what else am I going to say? Yeah, because it's God. It's God, right? I mean, you know, everybody's praying and everyone's hearing from God yeah. and this is God. What else are you going to say? Of course, of course. And I want to follow Jesus. I'm all for Jesus. I've laid down my idols. I've laid down myself. This is not about me. This is about what can I do for the kingdom of God? So Keith says, okay, great, wait here. And he bops out of the room and he goes and he comes back like a minute later and Martin's following him. And he says, okay, all right. Martin, you got yourself a girlfriend. All right, so here are the rules. And he and I, you know, I don't even remember. They're like, okay, you can like you can sit together at meals and you know, but you got to be in a group setting. And then you know, you, but you guys can spend some time talking. So then he says, but go on out and go go take a walk right now. Now this is late at night, and I mean, the memories, the visuals of this are frozen in my mind, just absolutely frozen. I remember walking out the front door. I remember the logs, the light on the log siding of the house and, and the tree out front. And, and we walk out the front door and I say, I don't know about you, but this just feels really awkward. And that's what I remember of that particular night. 
so we're doing whatever we're doing. You know, we're able to sit together during breakfast and lunch and dinner and we pray together, of course, and we read the Bible and we share things, you know, and maybe two and a half weeks in, I'm writing a letter home to my mom and my mom's still not saved, you know, but I keep in touch because I'm trying to plant seeds for Jesus. And I tell her, I said, you know, I'm actually, I'm, I'm kind of getting to know this, spending a little time with this guy here. And it's really interesting because his parents happened to live in Tucson as well. They had moved there. So they weren't originally from there. His parents happened to live in Tucson as well. And so that's interesting because you're in Tucson and, uh, but you know, it's nothing serious, you know, anyway, and blah, blah, blah onto other things. So a few days later, and it had to have been a Sunday because it was during the day and we weren't working. So that we, cause we worked Monday through Saturday. Keith pulls me aside. It's been three weeks about, give or take, since this special relationship began. Keith pulls me aside. He says, Sharon, come here. I got to talk to you. So we go over and we sit on the couch and it's in front of the fireplace in the branch house with the bright red carpet. This just really weird thing. Again, this is burned into my image, uh, the image of my brain. And he's, he's, he plops down next to me. He goes, so how's it going with Martin? I said, well, I, I think it's going it's going pretty good. I think it is. He goes, okay, cool. Do you love him? And I'm like, I've never thought those words. I've never thought that feeling. I've never said anything, but this is Keith. Do you love him? I said, yeah, I, I guess I do. He's okay, great. Do you want to marry him? And I'm like, yeah, I guess I do. Okay, great. Wait here. And he bobs back out, goes to get Martin, comes, brings Martin back, sits him down on the, on the couch, says, okay, you guys are engaged. This is great. Oh, and Martin, congratulations, man. You've got the prettiest girl in the ministry. And he says, okay. And, and that's all I remember. And my, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> wow. So then the next day, we call our parents. I call my mom. I call my dad. They're divorced. But I call them both and I tell them and Martin calls his parents. What's fantastic is two days later, my letter arrives in the mail to my mom in Tucson, where I'm telling her about this guy and that we're just friends. Two days after I call her and tell her I'm engaged. So she calls his parents and they're talking and they're like, holy shit, this is like a cult thing. Oh my God, what's happening to our kids? And they're calling up and I'm like, no, it's not an arranged marriage. No, mom, this is Jesus. This is what I want. And I do remember two other things. I could not eat. I just couldn't eat. I remember going out to pray one day. I, I mean, I was stressed. I was so stressed, but I couldn't say it. I couldn't, I didn't recognize it. You know, honestly, this was just really a trauma response. But I remember going out and praying and, and I was, I was so afraid and I misinterpreted what the terror was about. I'm thinking of the scriptures, you know, where Paul's talking about how you can serve Jesus better when you're single, because then you're not double-minded with, you know, being married and I'm praying and I'm so afraid and I'm, I'm crying and I'm saying, Jesus, I just don't want to anything to come between you and me. And I, you know, I'm afraid that if I get married, then my heart's going to be divided and you know, I'm just, I'm just so was terrified of getting married, but I spun it in my own head that, you know, it's just about, I don't want to be, I don't want to be 
half-hearted for Jesus. Yeah, you've got to spiritualize it. I mean, that's what yeah. we did. We spiritualized we did. everything. We you know, uh, depression was a demonic attack. Doubt is a you know attack of the devil. And so, yeah, it makes perfect sense. You had to spiritualize this to make it make sense in that worldview. And the trauma was so intense. You know, I mean, I really, I literally couldn't eat so much so that when I somehow we visited my mom, we visited Arizona a few day, a few months later or something like that. And uh, I think Martin and his brother had come to the ministry too. And we all three drove to Tucson or something. So somehow I remember my mom walked in, I was home and I'm, you know, changing whatever she came in. She was just like, oh my God, Sharon, you look like, you look, you just came out of Auschwitz. What happened? I mean, I got down, I'm five, seven and I got down to 106 pounds. I mean, I was, I was just kind of skeletal and nobody noticed. It's like somebody should have noticed, man, something's wrong with this girl. You know, you don't just lose that much weight and everything's okay. Now that we're engaged, we have a little bit more leeway, right? We can, we can be alone together, but it's very clear, you know, you can hold hands, but I don't even remember if we were told we shouldn't kiss, but we kind of like, no, you shouldn't kiss. But I remember Melody pulls me aside and, oh, and, and our, our wedding was going to be like within a few months. Oh, because also (laughs) Russia had invaded Afghanistan, I think in December of 79. And we're not called last days ministries for nothing, folks. Yeah, this is out of revelation. So Jesus may be coming back soon. So, you know, let's get this, let's this marriage thing done. Anyway, so I don't remember again what the exact date was, but it was it was within a few months. Melody comes and says, "Hey, Sharon, I got to talk to you." So we go go in their bedroom, and she goes, "You know, you've really got to guard your heart. You know, the spirit of lust and and this, you know, problems of this and that." And and you know what? They came they came from that culture of a whole lot of you know a whole lot of sexual activity and several of the you know a lot of the people that the ministry did, but I didn't. I'm like not that at all. So, yeah, so she's like, you know, kind of sort of reading me the riot act and wanting me to confess about this, you know, some sort of struggle with sexual temptation. And it's like, that's just not even there. And I'm like, and I didn't, I never felt really close with, Melody was not a very warm or connected person. So there really wasn't that kind of connection. Keith was, you know, he was like my big brother and, and really looked out for me, I thought, (laughs) until he did this. But I still thought he was looking out for me. I thought he's hearing God for me. Anyway, but I'm just like, I'm really, really struggling. And so I think Melody kicked it over to Keith. And so Keith comes, because I'd said, I'm actually, I'm actually really kind of worried about this. So Keith comes and we go and we sit in what's called the fish room. And that was this little room that had this big aquarium giant aquarium wall that was between the kitchen and this little bedroom and um or what used to be an office and there was this curtain put up and Wayne and Kathleen that was their room they were you know so they were recently married so Keith says come on we got to talk so we sit down there and we're talking he goes so Melody seems to indicate you're like 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 you're a little worried I said well yeah like you guys there's a date on the calendar and it's like this calendar is hanging up there and there's this date circled and you point to it and it's like, that's the day that you, I'm going to have sex for the first time. And it just feels so contrived. And I think that was when he probably had a holy shit moment of like, whoa, this girl is really just a little girl. 
And okay. So they basically backed the whole thing up, said, well, wait a year. You know, we set a year ahead for the marriage, for the wedding. Yeah. Melly's going to, you know, help me get prepared and everything. So there's like some god awful book by Tim and Beverly LaHaye and some other sort of things and, you know, just ridiculous stuff. And what I remember. <laughs> I know that book, by the way. <laughs> Do you? Because I read that book. Is is that the book that tells the women to do the pelvic exercise? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You may want to do a little stretching, girls, a little stretching. And really advocates lube. You want to have KY jelly lube. Okay. So I'm just, of course, I didn't know that then. I figured it out a lot years later. It's like, yeah, you know, the reason you need to have lube is because you don't want to have sex. That's the reason you need lube. And so <laughs> it's just like, the whole thing is just so crazy. Now, I'm not saying other couples that got together at the ministry that this was the, the, the experience for all of them. It was certainly mine was the most extreme. Mine was definitely the arranged everything. And um, yeah, and, and Tracy and I joke that the idea of this beautiful thing of being a virgin on your wedding night, we highly unrecommend it. Unrecommend it. I'm saying all this, this is not to cast how do you say this without it sounding awful and hurtful? Look, my husband, now ex-husband, he's caught up in all of this totally batshit crazy stuff, right? So I'm not trying to heap condemnation on anyone. I'm just saying this is what happened. And I even look back on, you know, that whole wedding night and I, I'm actually seeing a trauma therapist about it now because I see it. I don't recognize, I did not recognize how dissociated I had to be in that situation because I couldn't say to myself, this is a choice someone else made for me, but that's really the truth of it. It really sounds a lot like the family, the church of God, you know, all these sort of extreme commune style cults, which, which, which came out of the same Jesus people. Yeah. yeah. It came out of the yeah. same Jesus people movement. Really, this was very, very similar to that. I mean, you weren't being sexually exploited, but this was an arranged marriage. It was. It absolutely was. I w that was in April of 1981. I was 19 years old. Martin was 20. He was five years. So he was 24. So now you're part of that holy trinity mm -hmm. of LDM. Like you've got the, the three elders. You're the wife. Are you feeling like you're, you are up to that? Did you feel a pressure about that? Here you are. No, no, I didn't. I didn't feel the pressure about that. I'm a pretty sharp and go-getter kind of person. Sharon, do you think the reason why there wasn't a whole lot more pressure on you was because you were the woman? Tracy has said to us that it was a very patriarchal idea and Leonard Ravenhill was very much influencing this sort of complementarianism. Was it more egalitarian than that or were was it the man's work? No, I think there was some some level of egalitarian. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, in the end, it's the man, right? He's the one with the cock and balls, so he gets to call the shots. That's, that's the way it goes. But, you know, we had a lot of leadership meetings that were the six of us, Keith and Mel and me and Martin and Wayne and Kathleen. And uh, and we were listened to as the, Kathleen and I were listened to very much so. I think there was, I think there was a certain respect in that without a doubt. I never felt, I never felt not listened to. 
You, you just said there that you and Kathleen were listened to. Were, were you inferring that Melody wasn't? Because you were talking before a bit of, you know, the coercion, the control, the bullying. I think you called it bullying. Yeah, no, I'm not that Melody was not listened to. No, no, I don't don't mean that at all. Melody though didn't really participate when when Keith was alive. She didn't really participate in much that had to do with the running of the ministry. Sometime in eighty one, they had the uh, little house came up for sale across the street, and so they bought that and moved there. And as they needed to, I mean, it was crazy. We're all jammed in this little house. So they had their family house, and they had um. So they had the two kids and then foster daughter Dawn. And actually at one point, my youngest sister came and lived with them for a year and lived with, she and Dawn shared a a bedroom. And of course, there's a lot of, I've heard a lot of stories there, just a lot of just looking to these young, even younger girls, junior high school age girls to be the babysitters, to, to really be the surrogate parents for the kids that were there. And, and feeling really put upon. So back to your question. No, Keith absolutely listened to Melody. Absolutely he did. There was not, that, that wasn't the case. It's just she was not really involved that much. She did some contributing with um, writing uh, articles, obviously, and uh, writing songs as well. But in terms of the day-to-day running and other things, there wasn't, there wasn't involvement with with the the day-to-day in the ministry. You are listed in the will as the woman that would become a mother to Keith and Melody's kids. If everything, if anything were to happen to them, you are married to an elder. Why aren't you mentioned in Melody's book on the life of Keith Green? Well, neither Martin nor I are mentioned. I think the reason is that in the years that followed after Keith died, there were a lot of there were a lot of things that happened. In the end, we in essence became sort of whistleblowers. We felt that what Melody was wanting to do, and she was wanting to do it, uh, her exact words were to me, Martin, Kathleen, and Wayne were, "If you can't tell me that God's actually told you no." then I'm going to do this. Even though all of us and no one in the ministry believed that what she was wanting to do was right. And that in in particular, in this one was she wanted to record album, an album of her own, and she wanted to go on a concert tour. And for a lot of reasons, we're like, this is not right. This is not right. To us, and at the time to Wayne and Kathleen as well, we felt that, you know what? I think the cycle of last days is coming to a close. And I remember Keith used to joke. I mean, we, <laughs> we used to joke about, hey, we do not want to be another Salvation Army. You know, in America, like Salvation Army is just, you think of it as like a thrift store where you've got, you know, mattresses for sale. And Keith would say, when the spirit of God is done with us, man, we're putting dynamite under these buildings and we're blowing this thing up because if the spirit of God moves on, let's not keep this thing on life support. And we were all into that. Those of us in the ministry, those of us who came and gave our lives, because remember, everybody else there was there by choice. I think Melody in many ways got co-opted in this. I don't, I don't know that this was her dream of what she wanted, this big ministry machine. We felt, we felt, you know, this, this is, 
this is going off the rails. This is not what any of us feel the Spirit of God is saying, and maybe it's time for us to close. And we were actually excited about it. It's like, this is pretty radical, right? What giant megachurch pastor sort of thing says, you know what, God's done and wants to do something different. You know, the idea was we wanted to say, we, we had a lot of money in the bank. I was never privy to all of the finances, but I think I'm pretty sure there was almost a couple hundred thousand in the bank at that point. It was like, you know what? Let's ask everyone on staff, you guys pray, figure out what God wants you to do. Maybe God wants you to go to missions. Maybe he wants you to go home. Maybe he wants you to go to college, whatever it is, whatever God puts on your heart, you know, we're going to divvy up what we have. Let everybody get what they need to go and do what's on their hearts and make sure Mel and her girls are totally taken care of. Let her heal, let her relax and heal. I mean, she never really had time to really grieve. There's a whole lot of stuff behind that too, because I don't, that wasn't, that wasn't just people pushed her into it. This is what she did, what she wanted. And we just felt this thing needs to be wrapped up. And there is a whole, it's way too long to go into, but there's a whole thing about what happened with all of that. And in the end, we still believed that that's what should happen. We were kicked out and labeled of the devil. And there was a mass exodus of virtually all the kind of movers and shakers that were in the ministry. And we really thought Melody was not on the right track. And therefore, I don't know that she knew what to do or to say or how to explain. So the easiest thing was just to pretend we didn't exist. So when you you look back on your time in Last Days Ministries now, you you know, 35, 40 years later, obviously your marriage hasn't worked out. But in terms of your experience, you were there, what, six, seven years, something like that? With Keith, I was there, well, I knew Keith from 75, but I was there with Keith from 79 to 82 and with Melody through 1985. The wisdom of now and and the value of hindsight, how do you interpret that time? How do you look upon it as part of your life? You know, it's interesting because I think of I think of my childhood, I think of all these different things. And on the one hand, I would never wish this stuff on someone else. I would never recommend to someone else, hey, yeah, go sign up for this. And at the same time, all these things are part of who I am. You know, they've, they've shaped who I am. And I guess the, what I, I believe to be the insights and the compassion and the drive and the different things that I, that are important to me. And so, you know, my internal moral compass. And so in that sense, I don't know that, would I change it? It's a really hard question because I like who I am. And I wouldn't want to give up anything that contributed to where I am today. And I still have growth ahead of me. And I I will say this, I will always have a love in my heart for Keith, always. And I'll always be pissed off at him for doing that fucking stupid thing of shoving all those people into the plane and doing what he did. I mean, it was just, it was just arrogant, stupid risk-taking. And I'll always be angry with him for that. 
I mean, I don't believe in that sort of heaven, go see somebody again. But if I could say something to him and I'll say, Keith, what the fuck? What the fuck about so many things that you did? And thank you for many of the other things that you did. You know, my belief system is totally shifted. I think Jesus will always have a place in my psyche because it's the persona of Jesus that was kind of my first introduction to the ideas and ideals of a spiritual path and of self-awareness and personal growth. So I look back on it with a lot of mixed feelings. Sharon, tell us how you came to a point then of jettisoning your faith. That was a long and agonizing, agonizing process. Some of it started with conflict in the marriage. As I told you, both everybody who came, we were all coming from places of brokenness. You know, we were not healthy, whole people. We all form our coping strategies, our survival strategies in our childhoods, you know, our attachment system and just how we navigate things that are really difficult or really painful in our childhoods. For me, my coping strategy was to feel guilty and accept the blame for everything, take responsibility for everything. My ex-husband's coping strategy was to dish out the blame. So for many years, it was a great relationship. It was, we were comfortable in our roles. Neither role was healthy, but it's what we knew and it's how we had dealt with things you know, in our, in our childhoods and adolescence. There came a time where that just started to not feel good anymore. I also, I started a business and rubbing shoulders with more people of the world. But one thing I'm noticing is some of these people are just like, they're really nice. They're really good people and they're smart. But my, my worldview, my paradigm says they're all going to burn in hell. And there was this cognitive dissonance of like, how does that, how does that even work? So I'm dealing with stuff in my marriage. And I remember times just praying, say, God, you know, why doesn't my husband love me? You know, because I think he was in love with who he thought I should be, but not who I really was. You know, and again, he's coming from a place of brokenness as well. So I've got that going on. I'm struggling to make sense of the idea that these other people that I'm meeting and involved with in business and either employees or, or just like they're good people. How can they be going to hell? And then I have my kids. My oldest is in, in teenage years and starting to pull some shit. The teenagers pull. I think a profound thing happened. There was in our area, there was this accident where Six teenage boys, ranging from 14 to 16 years old, went joyriding in an SUV, and they crashed, and all of them were killed, and it was a really traumatic thing for our locality, and I remember it on the news, and I remember thinking, hmm, if they weren't right with God, every one of those boys is in hell, and they're the same ages of my kids, and I'm thinking, that just, how can that be? How can that be? And I remember one night, anyway, I'm looking up at the sky and I'm looking at the size of the universe. I'm looking at the stars, it, just the uncountable, unfathomable size of the universe and the stars. And I thought of that as it would relate to the idea of eternity. And then I thought of holding a single grain of sand from the beach in, in my hand. And the idea that the lifespan of a human is like a single grain of sand. 
And all of eternity is like this universe, this unimaginable universe. And I thought, how could, how could selfish and stupid choices that are equivalent to this little tiny grain of sand of a, of a human lifespan, how could bad choices be worthy of an eternity the size of the universe of torture and torment? It's like, that just doesn't make sense. My oldest teenager, you know, like I said, was pulling some shit and I thought, okay, what's the worst thing I could imagine this kid doing? I thought, okay, the worst thing is to take my other kids and one by one, torture them for a month at a time and murder them and then do the next one and the next one, the next one, and then run out of, of, of murdering and torturing all the siblings and now start going to kids in the neighborhood. That's the worst thing I could imagine one of my kids ever doing. And I thought if that happened and the only way I could stop that kid would be to kill them. Could I do that? I thought, well, yeah, probably it would break my heart, but if that's the only way to stop them from doing all this other horrible stuff, I think I would feel I had to. Could I sentence that kid to an eternity of torture? Hell no. And then I'm thinking, wait a second. I'm a human. How, how could I, how could I have more compassion than this God? And that was the beginning of this whole breakdown of like, it just no longer could make any sense that there's a literal hell and that a God would do this. And he could make the rules. Why would he make these rules? And this was like in the late 90s. I was, you know, the, the word deconstruction didn't exist. There were no that I knew of that the internet was barely even a thing. I didn't know of anyone else. I mean, it was a very isolated thing going through this questioning my faith and feeling guilty. You know, you feel like a guilty, horrible, awful betrayer. And I remember times thinking, God, just kill me. Please just kill me. Because if I lose my faith, then my children may be led to hell and I'll now my kids will go to hell. So God, it'd just be better if you would just kill me right now. Yeah, it was agony for years, but I really came to and I come to a, a place of just a peace that is beyond anything I ever had in the quote Christian world. Yeah, there's a whole, whole lot more to all of the intricacies of all of that, but I'm glad for my journey. And it's an amazing journey, Sharon. I mean, today's stories have just made you, you called it, you said you guys are sitting there just looking stoned. Because we were <laughs> we were just so Because we were just going, What the fuck? you know. When I think of all of it and I think of where everybody's landed, I feel I feel a lot of compassion. I feel compassion for people that are really stuck still. They're stuck. They've never grown. If I'm thinking and believing the exact same things. 10, 20, 30 years down the road, it's like, well, it's not, I'm missing out on some growth for sure. And I feel a bit of consternation that if it wasn't impacting other people's lives, then it really wouldn't matter. But there's a lot of this message, this Christian extreme radical for Jesus message that is pretty insidious. And these teachings and these fundamental principles and these beliefs that are still being instilled through organizations like YWAM and others. I mean, there's a very, very dark side to this. I still wish everyone well. I don't wish ill. 
but I don't want to see people hurting other people. The sad moment for us, Sharon, is that we have to wrap up our conversation with you. How, however, I think you've just you've said that there's hours, there's days of conversations and stories around this. The great thing is you and Tracy are starting a podcast. So you are going to have that platform to tell more of these stories. And I can tell you, Troy and I will be avid listeners because <laughs> oh hell yeah hell yeah man this is going to be like you know whatever day you release i'm going to be go- it's like bart ehrman's podcast on, on on a tuesday in australia i'm like okay here we go that's how this is going to be and so i said this to tracy i say it to you you've got to do this podcast ladies you have to do this podcast well she's been the she's been the power to push it so it's going to happen because she's the one doing that yeah you're both great storytellers and i think it's not just your your recall of things from back in those days but that it's the way that you you tell it and you add your own experience and flavor to it, it that's really it's they're compelling stories and i think it's going to be a really amazing evolution of those stories as the podcast commences and we we feel really privileged that we had first Tracy come on, but you know Tracy also contacted us a couple of weeks ago and said, "Hey, we're ready to start the podcast, but I'd really love you guys to have Sharon on to tell her story." So we we do feel really privileged that the platform that you're using to launch into Feet of Clay podcast started here on I What the Fuck. I what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> so you know, it, I, I do truly mean that. You know, it's it's been a, a privilege talking to you both, and I I just cannot wait. Like, you need to get this out very very soon. So get onto it. All right. Well, that's going to fall on Tracy's shoulders. So you know, send her an email and tell her <laughs> make it happen. But thank you guys because this is really cool. You are the ones who've provided the impetus to make this actually start to happen. And I've gone back, I've been listening to various episodes that you you all have done and it's just great. Yeah. Power to the power to the people, man. Like breaking free of breaking free of the bullshit. Yeah, power to the ex Jesus people. There you go. That's what it is. Okay. Thank you, Sharon. We really appreciate you being a part of this. It's been awesome. Thank you. If you'd like to connect with the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast, then please see the links in our link tree in the show notes. We invite you to pop across to our very vibrant listener community on Facebook, which is a private group, and we're also on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit. Also, a huge thank you to Lucy, who manages our social strategy, and to Kerry and Bree, who manage our Facebook listener group. All of our episodes are transcribed to increase accessibility, and the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. It's produced and hosted by Brian McDowell and Troy Waller, with all sound production and editing done by Troy Waller. You can find all these links in our link tree in the show notes.